Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Today is episode number 405, Taking a Company Public During a Pandemic, with Bruce Cleveland at C3AI. We looked in August of last year, we looked around at the planning meeting that we're about to go into in a couple of weeks again. And we said, we think there's actually an opportunity here to take this company public. And a lot of companies were going public. And we said, if other companies do this and the IPO window shuts down and we don't get through that window, that could present serious issues, cash issues, et cetera. So we all looked around at each other and said, well, we got to go for it. And so literally within three months, we went from um, being a private company to being a public company. As an entrepreneur focused on marketing, it was an extreme honor to interview today's guest, Bruce Cleveland. Bruce is an absolute Silicon Valley legend, having worked in operational roles at companies including Oracle, Apple, and Siebel Systems. In addition to that, he has worked in venture capital for 15 years, where he has personally generated over a billion dollars in returns. This includes his work at InterWest Partners, one of the most respected VCs in the world, but also as the founder of Wildcat Venture Partners, where he worked for five years. He is now the chief marketing officer of a company called C3AI. He just took that company public. It was founded by Tom Siebel of Siebel Systems, who has now created three different billion-dollar ventures. We talk about marketing, the CMO role, artificial intelligence, venture capital, and more. As always, at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes with links to everything we discuss, as well as a lot of books and great resources that Bruce recommended and I'm certainly going to check out. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with Bruce. Joining me today in Redwood City, California, my guest is Bruce Cleveland. Bruce, welcome to Beyond the Uniform. Hey, great to be here, Justin. So here is a very brief bio on Bruce, and I'm extremely excited to connect with him. You'll find out why, but Bruce is the CMO, the Chief Marketing Officer at C3AI, a leading enterprise AI software provider for accelerating digital transformation. With nearly 700 employees listed on LinkedIn, C3AI raised over $228 million before going public in December of 2020. Bruce started out at West Point with the class of 1980. 80, left early to pursue a career in technology, including time at Oracle, Apple, Siebel Systems, nine years as a general partner at investment firm InterWest Partners, and more. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm excited, in addition to caring a lot about marketing, and we haven't had a lot of marketers on the show, I'm excited to hear about Bruce's experience going public. Very few people get to do that. And the laundry list of companies I listed off as an eight-year resident of San Francisco, that's the who's who of incredible companies to work at. And to have so many of those listed in one bio is pretty exceptional. So Bruce, maybe to set the stage, let's start with where you're at now. How would you describe what C3 AI does as a company? Yeah, well, I've worked now with Tom Siebel for many years, 35 years. I joined him at Oracle when it was a small little private company as his sales engineer. And then went on when he created Siebel Systems, I held a variety of positions. I was head of marketing, head of product, head of biz dev, pretty much whatever needed to be fixed, Tom had me work on. I joined here a few years ago in an operating role coming out of venture capital to basically end 
end my career. This is my final my, my final uh, investment back in technology, et cetera. So kind of where it began, I'm ending it with Tom. Tom's challenge to me was to create a new category. Category creation is something I wrote about extensively in my book called Traversing the Traction Gap. I teach its principles at Stanford and Columbia and other schools. And I had the opportunity to put to work or put into play those principles that I wrote about in the book to see if they actually were more than just manufactured concepts, that they were actually things that really could work. And I think we've done a pretty good job here in the challenge that Tom gave me, which was engineer a new category called enterprise AI. And so We set about to do that a couple of years ago, and uh, the process is to describe the category, its attributes, from a world that looks like the way that it does to a new world with this thing called enterprise AI, and then to characterize it effectively and position C3 AI as the market leader in that category. In this case, it's a $250 billion total addressable market. So it's a category worth pursuing. Uh, One of the largest categories that I've ever been a part of. Siebel created the CRM category, customer relationship management. That today is probably a $60 billion, $80 billion category. So this is by far a much larger category to pursue. So the idea, in fact, this is one of the principles of the book, if you want to redact it down to a term called market engineering. When I think about the companies I invested in, companies that were just ideas like Marketo, companies like Velocity, like C3 AI, these are um, Doximity, which just went public a few weeks ago. These are companies that were just on a whiteboard when I first worked with the entrepreneurs. And what I learned over time is that where I made money and where I lost money was really not around strong product engineering. All these teams that I've worked with, most of the technology teams are in fact quite good at product engineering. What differentiates the winners from the losers is this notion of market engineering. It's a term I coined in the book to basically discuss Things like thought leadership, storytelling, category creation, messaging, and positioning. Those are the five fundamental tenets of market engineering. And if you can do them well, and if you can accurately differentiate what you are doing from what everyone else is doing, and this is, I think it's also true in the B2C space. So I'm most actively in the B2B space. If you can do this well, you will emerge as the category leader. And the reason you want to do that is because 76% of all profits of a category go to the market leader. So you do not want to be anything but the market leader in a category that you pursue. So we are and have defined the enterprise AI category is basically four things. It's the ability to be able to ingest data from any data source, whether that's structured, unstructured, or semi-structured data. So that could be exogenous data from the enterprise, things like weather data, things like commodity data, things like social media data, et cetera, and being able to combine that with enterprise data, structured data from any type of systems, ERP, order management, CRM, et cetera. And you have to be able to ingest all of that data through connections. You then have to be able to store and unify that data. We call it into a unified federated data image. Everybody out there might have heard of things like data lakes. That's kind of what this is. Maybe a little bit simplify. I'm sure our engineers will hate me for saying that. So, So that's the second piece is be able to store it all into one single area. Because if you can't do that, then you can't build machine learning models. So that's the third piece, which is you have to be able to have the tooling to build the models to tune the models. And then you still haven't realized any economic value from that experiment. You have to be able to activate those models through applications. So if you can't do all four of those things, you do not have an enterprise AI platform and you are not a complete enterprise AI company. You may have pieces of that. So Snowflake, 
would offer a piece of that, or Data Robot would offer a piece of that. And by the way, they're partners, we work with them, our customers all use those technologies. But what I've tried to do, what we've tried to do is define what enterprise AI is through those four elements, and then propagating those attributes through white papers, advertising, other content, et cetera, to define and own the category. So that's what we're doing here. And that's what we do at C3AI to help build or help companies build predictive applications that allow them to solve what we say are previously unsolvable problems like for inventory supply chain optimization, healthcare readiness in the Department of Defense so that keeping the aircraft in the sky, whether it's helicopters or whether it's uh, C-5 or F-35s or whatever, it's a preponderance across all different industries and organizations of next generation applications that historically have been retrospective in how they, you know, we did this thing called business intelligence where we store and capture transactions. Then we run an extract, transform, and load process, and then we have reporting. That's business intelligence, and that's all backward-looking. What we're trying to do is to do forward-looking. So predict when the part will fail. Predict when there's going to be a problem in the supply chain. Predict when somebody's going to have a healthcare issue. So these are all really, really hard things to do. And so that's why we had 55,000 people apply to work here over the last year maybe a little bit more now. And we only hired a couple of hundred people. That's how hard it is to get into working here from the data science and then the engineering organizations. So pretty interesting stuff. And it's fun to solve problems like this that are meaningful for businesses, but perhaps maybe even more meaningful for society. The things that we're doing here, we help with COVID, we help with 3M, we help with Philips, get the right masks, the right ventilators built at the right time to the right people in the world. You know, I think being able to do good while making good, it's rare and it's fun to do. You know, it's pretty compelling, the opportunity size as you explain that. And one question that came up for me as you were saying that was thinking back to when Tom started Siebel Systems, you were there early on through the growth there. And then teaming up again, I understand that you started as an investor and then joined full time internally. You both have a world of experience from when you first met and the world has changed significantly. What stands out to you as some of the bigger differences in growing a company from when you did this at Siebel versus what you're doing now at C3AI? That's a great question. I'll tell you the one thing that really kind of stands out for me is the emergence of this entire category of digital marketing. Back in the day in the 1990s and early 2000s, we did marketing. We did something called database marketing. We would create three different versions of a postcard or some kind of a flyer that we would email or not email. We would actually physically send out. We'd have different treatments on it and we'd wait a few weeks by some kind of salted list from some named marketing company. And we'd say, oh, wow, look, the red one really, you know, with this messaging really seems to resonate. Let's do that one. Let's don't do the other ones. And I mean, it was kind of dinosaur-like, right? I mean, it just took a long time to figure out what worked and what different worked. Literally today, within a few days, there's some exceptions. Google has some algorithms. It takes a while to kind of train those. But more or less, within a few days, you can see what's working and what isn't working. You can tailor things. You can find people. You can a very specific audience, either whether it's through LinkedIn or whether it's through, you know, we don't really use Facebook. That's not a social media site that really works for us because of the types of products we sell. But but you can, if you have the right products, you can see very precisely what is going on and you get this great insight 
to be able to do more of something that's working and less of what isn't very, very rapidly. And the most fun I've had since coming back, and I was the first investor in a company called Marketo. It was just an idea, three people, basically no code, no customers. I'm not sure if a dog was involved, but uh, there may have been, but it was one of those iconic classic things where, and what we want to do is transform the role of marketing from what I affectionately call party planning into something that was revenue generating. And I think that Phil uh, Fernandez, John Miller, and Dave Randy, the founders of Marketo, basically transformed the role of marketing by making it a very analytic data-driven source. And then that begat, I don't know, 7,000 other companies, I'm, I'm literally 7,000 new companies that have emerged since Marketo to solve various problems around marketing issues that are all data-driven and data-based. So for me, that was the biggest thing. It's been the most interesting thing. I did it as an investor, but now on the operating side, I've had to learn how to actually use this technology along with a bunch of other technology to provide ourselves deeper insights into what's going on with our ad spend, with our demand gen spend, et cetera. So in fact, one thing, my digital marketing team is all very technical. They're engineers. Traditionally, a lot of people put these business people into the digital marketing function. I wanted to code a brand new product using our technology to provide predictive analytics for marketing across intent, data across behavioral data to be able to isolate and identify people who we think would be great targets for us. And so I needed an engineering team that could bolt together and integrate these things on top of our technology stack. So a little different point of view for me on the digital marketing. Digital marketing is the number one thing that stuck out and the velocity of that and the insight it gives us really, really tremendous. The postcard to today is a a pretty powerful (laughs) example of how much things have changed and how quickly things operate now. You are the first, I believe, the first chief marketing officer I've had on the show. I'd love for you to explain to listeners what does, I imagine there's so much variability in your day. What is your day-to-day life look like? What sort of problems are you solving? How do you deploy your time? Just if you can paint that picture of what this role encompasses within a company like C3AI. We're a very technical company, and we have to take very technical ideas and convert them into crayon. We have to make it very understandable by the industry at large, what we're doing. So I have several different functions. One is to obviously create awareness and interest in who we are and what we're doing. And we do that through a variety of advertising. So we have a brand agency that we work with to build the TV ads that we run, to build the out-of-home with billboards those kinds of things, advertising, digital, so display advertising. So that's one aspect. We have public relation function, which is building the brand of Tom Siebel in the news. One thing that we have that a lot of companies don't have is a very successful technology icon who has, this is a third multi-billion dollar company that he's helped to build from scratch. And he's very well known in the technology industry. So we use him as an asset to then build the C3 AI brand That's not something normally startups have access to. So uh, we use that quite heavily. The IPO has gone a long way to also give us tremendous global awareness and interest. So there's the PR function. We have a creative services team. We have a very small team, by the way. I mean, it's 13 or 14 people. And I think we punch way above our weight, given the type of people who are working here. But we do have a creative services team that build all of the web assets, the layout of all the content that we do, whether it's a brochure looking or a 
a case study or it's going to go into the banners that we use as physical banners at maybe an event. So we have that group that also produces all of the presentations. So that function of creative services. We have a strategic communications function, which helps to manage the PR, but also produces content in the form of blogs and blog posts, podcasts, those types of things. We have an event function. So the event function is, hey, it hasn't been physical events, obviously, for the last year or so. It's been virtual events. We knew nothing about how to do that. We learned pretty rapidly. We have pretty highly produced internally these uh, webinars that we do that have professional voiceovers and graphics and lower thirds and stuff. And that was something we had to teach ourselves how to do. I challenged the team to learn how to do it. And that's where I also took advantage of the coding capability of our digital marketing team. So we were able to use something called open broadcast software to then highly produce these webinars. So there's that piece of it. That's the events side of it. Now moving into physical events as the world begins to open up. And I know we've got this Delta variant thing we're dealing with, but the world is still reopening. And then I have what we would call product line and industry marketing, which is effectively hey, what are the campaigns that we're going to run by industry or by products? We have a variety. We have 23 different software-as-a-service applications that run on top of our platform. So you can either build bespoke applications on using our tooling or other people's tooling on top of what we call the C3 AI suite, which is the enterprise AI platform. And then we have 20-some-odd applications that we've pre-built that you can configure. So those are across a variety of different industries, et cetera. I mentioned some of them, things like readiness, inventory, supply chain optimization. That team, the inventory, the um, industry marketing, product line marketing group is responsible for building campaigns that take the content and then propagate that through paid search, paid social, organic social events with partners, et cetera, to help build that brand authority and awareness and interest. So those are really the groups inside of my organization and what we focus our day on. We work closely with the products organization that does product marketing and product management, engineering, and data science. So product marketing works to create the marketing specs for what a customers want. We work with them to convert language that would be technical into something that's, again, consumable by the general populace. And so it's kind of a, you know, pretty much a joint partnership between us. But that's kind of the bifurcated line between what product marketing does and what we do or my group does here that we call corporate marketing. I have other questions there, but we'll come back if we have time because I, I want to cover some of the bigger topics first. And I really appreciate the detail there. I think that will be something listeners can rewind and listen to again. What was your experience like? And I realize how recent this was and that this was in the midst still of a pandemic. What was your experience like being in the C-suite taking a company public? Well, we thought that everything was just going to shut down. I mean, when this happened, there was no, so March of 2020, basically we hunkered down, right? We cut all advertising. We cut all spend on that because we just said, look, businesses are shut down. We don't need to be spending on those things at this point. We need to get an assessment of where we are and what we're going to do. And then we began to realize that we quickly moved from physical selling into virtual selling and it was working. We had fortunately, the last uh, week of February, we held our user conference, our annual user conference in San Francisco, literally the day after they shut San Francisco down. This is in the middle of the RSA conference, a bunch of other things. So we thought, oh my God, the world's coming to end. We need to kind of take pause. No idea that an IPO was, I mean, no discussion of that. 
And then we began to emerge out of that and realize that, well, a lot of those conversations that we had, and you have to remember our average contract value here is like around 5 million. The TCV, you can be tens, multi-tens of millions. So we're a different animal than your high-velocity SaaS model. So all those conversations that we had at our annual conference in February began to evolve into closed deals and revenue. And we looked at that and we said, wow, we're actually doing pretty well. And we converted over to video, you know, what we're doing here, right? We're engaging through video conferencing and it's been effective. And because everything in the world was forced to go that way, all CEOs, and we sell primarily to the CXO suite, CXOs were available and they were willing to get engaged. And a lot of them felt like this was an opportunity to actually get started with these digital transformation projects that involved AI and ML. So we looked in August of last year, we looked around at the planning meeting that we're about to go into in a couple of weeks again. And we said, we think there's actually an opportunity here to take this company public. And a lot of companies were going public. And we said, hmm, if other companies do this and the, the IPO window shuts down and we don't get through that window, that could present serious issues, cash issues, et cetera. So we all looked around at each other and said, well, we got to go for it. And so literally within three months, we went from being a private company to being a public company. And I, I wish I could say that it was straightforward and easy and, you know, et cetera, but it literally, it was 15 hour days, seven days a week to write all the documents, do all the roadshow work do all the industry. I mean, it is an amazing amount of work that you have to do. And quite frankly, as a company, we're still pretty small as an organization to take this thing public. And it put an enormous amount of workload on Tom, the entire executive team to make it through that December 9th IPO. So it all looks good. You know, this is kind of like we say sausage making, right? You know, you show up at the store, Jimmy Dean sausages look pretty good. The process to, to make it's probably not quite as good. So it took a lot of work, a lot of effort. And when you see these companies IPO, you have to recognize that the management team not only had to go through all of that work to make it through the regulations to become a public company, but they also had to meet their numbers, right? They still had to continue to operate the business. It is hard. And it's even harder. The last time when I did this was at Siebel, personally, as an operating person, I've done it several times on a board, but you don't do any work on the board. Uh, the, uh, the last time I did it was 1996, was June of 1996. Well, think back, there was no Reg FD, no Sarbox, Sarbanes-Oxley, all those emerged. Those are rules and regulations and things that emerged due to poorly behaved companies. And so consequently, the work that you have to do to get your company ready and into an IPO, a lot more. You know, the document that we produced for our, the S1 was like this. When at Siebel, it was like that, very little. So hard. Hats off to everybody, all the executives and companies that go through that process. It's very difficult. I believe about two years ago is when you left nine-year career in venture capital, which, you know, when I was at Stanford, most of my classmates, I think, whether they admitted it or not, aspired to venture capitalism. It just seemed like the best of all possible jobs. So you left this and you said this is kind of your last role. What was it that drew you in from nine years in venture capital and saying, I'm going to go back into an operational role again, and this will likely be my last position for my career? Well, another great question. So actually, it's 15 years because after InterWest, which I spent almost 10 in, I spent five at a firm that I joined and helped build called Wildcat Venture Partners. That's right. That's right. My apologies. No, no. Uh, the, um, the, so what led me to this decision? 
actually, I have a, in addition to living in the Bay Area, I have a home in Bend, Oregon. And I had venture because I had more, it's more like a, a real estate brokerage, right? It, you've got the office, but for the most part, you're kind of your own individual. And it's the sum of the individual partners that drive the returns for the funds. And so I had the opportunity and the ability to live part-time up in Bend. I was in the process kind of looking at a beautiful cascade range, et cetera, thinking, I've had a pretty good go at the venture thing. I don't know what the total numbers are, but Doximity going public a few weeks ago, that was a generated sizable return for for Interwest. So pretty good, pretty good returns. And I'll just suffice it at that. So pretty good go at venture. And I said, is this really how you want to end your career sitting on the sidelines of one of the most interesting technology transitions to have occurred in my 40 years of doing this? And I thought, if I'm going to re-enter and do something, for those last few years, what will I do? I'm in my 60s. So, you know, you have a depletable asset called your career. You can only, you know, just like, I guess, athletes, you know, technology requires a lot of effort. And so what am I going to do? What am I going to do for that while I'm still very healthy, et cetera? And so I thought, well, I think this whole idea, this whole area of artificial intelligence, machine learning is really interesting. Where might I make that investment? And so I called up Tom and I just said, hey, I'm willing you know, I don't know how long I'll do it for, but I said, if there's a role maybe for me to actively engage and help with C3, and I'm pretty committed to this company because at Interwest, I made an investment when this was just an idea. Then at Wildcat, I made another investment. Also, I made a personal investment and now I'm an employee. So I'm that pig in that ham and egg breakfast, you know, <laughs> the, the chicken's involved, but the pig's committed. So I'm committed. So I decided that I would spend whatever time, a year, two years, whatever it was to help, to see if I could really help build, help Tom, who's been an instrumental part of my career, to see if I could help here. So that's what really led to it. I started my technology career with Tom as a sales engineer, and I'll end my career with Tom, and uh, however long that lasts, and see if I can make an impact. So that's really what led me to do this. As you look back on how you were as an operator prior to those 15 years in venture capital, and then you look at how you are as an operator. And again, I get that in 15 years, you change as a person, the industry changes, but I'm wondering, what do you believe you took out of venture capital or out of investing that's changed the way you operate? So I really think it's this, it was the process of me writing that book which forced me because I, I got tired of listening, you know, so this is my kind of my rant around venture. I got tired of the way in which I believe that a lot of venture firms, not everybody and not every partner operates this way, but a lot of venture firms, they won't tell you why they're not investing in you. You know, they'll nod politely. They'll say, thank you very much for meeting with us. And then you'll never hear from them again. And I actually grew tired. I said, I think we need to provide feedback, better feedback to these teams. And when I asked, why aren't we doing naively as a, you know, ex-operating guy and just kind of getting my feet wet in the the venture world, it came back because, well, we don't know if they're going to be successful or not, and we don't want to lose the opportunity by making them upset with us. We don't want to lose the opportunity to invest in them later on. That wasn't the only reason, but a lot of reasons was that. And I just felt this was not fair, not fair to the entrepreneurs. I didn't feel that they were giving enough real feedback. There was no way for the entrepreneur to take that engagement and learn from it. So when I wrote this book, when you have to write something to be cogent, you need to have some kind of thought process around how you're going to lay out what you're going to say. In this case, I wanted to write a prescriptive book 
that showed entrepreneurs and investors, by the way, how to analyze a startup before it has any revenue. If you have an MBA from Stanford, that works really well when there's revenue, product, customers, et cetera. You can begin to look at some of like the Bessemer numbers, you know, CLTV, customer lifetime value, customer acquisition costs, et cetera. But what if none of those exist? That's when I invest. None of that exists. It's mostly the ideation. And why is it that I generated well more than a billion in returns on far less invested? So why did I have success against some of the best and brightest, the Andreessen's, the Excel's, the Kleiner's, the Sequoia's? Why was I having success? And they are brilliant people working there. Why was I having such great success when others weren't? And I'll put my record up against most of them in terms of returns. And so I realized, well, it's because I use a different assessment methodology for how to figure out when there is no market, when there is no team, there is no product, and there's no revenue. And maybe it's because I'm comfortable with that because I've run product. I've run engineering teams at Apple and engineering teams at you know, other organizations. So maybe I'm a little different than a lot of the groups, a lot of the venture investors. But what I wanted to do was to be able to give back to the entrepreneurial community And so I didn't know this before I went into venture, right? I'd never done these things. I did a few seed kind of angel things, but I never really had a process. And I really didn't like the way that we were, we being the venture community, treating the entrepreneurs. And so what I learned over the course of 15 years was what I wrote in the book, which is how do you think about this as an entrepreneur? Where are we in the company maturity lifecycle from ideation to go to scale? and built an ontology, a set of terminology that you could use as an entrepreneur to kind of go, we are here and we need to focus on product, revenue, team, and systems. What are the most important elements of that? And then from an investor standpoint, as an investor, how can I evaluate this opportunity when this is a PowerPoint company, not a spreadsheet company? So the concept here was to give back that way. And what I've learned at coming back into operating is I've been able to take all of that and to convert it into how I think about when we're running our team here from a marketing standpoint. How do we position ourselves? How do we position Tom? How do we position the organization and engineer this market? So that's what I think I brought back to here and what I was able to do, something that is dramatically different than what I was doing prior to returning to an operating role. I can only imagine how excruciatingly difficult it was to take 15 years and boil it down to a framework that appeals and is true, not just for an operator, but also for the investor from two different perspectives. But it's incredible to hear that that has become part of the playbook for you now at C3AI and speaks to, I'm guessing it speaks to the quality of content that you created and the amount of yourself that you poured into that, that it really became this guiding post that you could use moving forward. Yeah, you can take, a lot of people do take, but I think it's important that at some point you need to give back. And you can give back through internships and teaching. You know, I I do teach from time to time at Stanford when I'm invited and when I have the time. I think it's important that we do that. I think everybody, we owe that back to, it's just like it's the role that the guilds played many years ago where apprentices and journeymen work together. And we don't really have that in the technology field. We don't really have that as a, a formal process. So it was important for me in terms of leaving a legacy 
Um, I have daughters in the technology industry, so it's important to me. And I have grandkids too, but they're not—they're not old enough to be in the industry yet. <laughs> Close, but the net was—I felt it was an obligation on my part. I've been able to work with some of the best and brightest people in the world. I come from very modest means, a little town called Petaluma. My parents were public school teachers. I don't come from these roots, these business roots or technology roots, and I felt it was important to provide what I've learned back to the industry. And I love that generosity. One thing that I wanted to ask about is I feel like oftentimes on the show or when I connect with veterans, we're essentially talking about leaving something to move on to something that's better aligned with them. That could be leaving the military. It could be going on to another job. I'd love to hear about your decision to leave West Point and kind of where that came from. It obviously worked out really well for you, but I'd love to hear just kind of the story behind that. Yeah, so this dramatically traumatized my dad and made my mom very happy. <laughs> so just, <laughs> just to be quite frank. So I was a class of 80, so the first class that admitted women into it, if the audience recalls. So it was a pretty interesting moment. It also was a time there's a juice scandal for the cows. So it was a very, I think, traumatic time. So 1976, a traumatic time, I think, for the all the academies, not just West Point, learning how to adapt to women entry. By the way, I think it's one of the best things that we've done. At the time, I think people kind of squinched their eyes up because they said, well, these are combat roles. But I think over time, combat, it's a little different. I just got done reading two great books, by the way. There, so I know this is a tangent, but I think it's important around cyber wars. One book called, so this is how they tell me the world ends by Nicole Polroth, who I just interviewed for our podcast. Then another book called The Perfect Weapon by David Sanger. Everybody should read these books. It is scary about the nation state war going on and at the cyber level. Nearly every system in the US, every company has been penetrated by Russian, China, North Korea, etc. So read it. It's important. So I think now to me, Combat isn't just about how big, tall, strong, et cetera, you are. It's about how smart you are. And clearly the women who joined us in the brave women who joined us in that class went on to have some fantastic careers, were perfectly very smart, very capable, and it's only gotten even better over time. And in addition, I think that women's sports has improved substantially. So the issue around physical capabilities, I think that's been relatively put to rest at this point. So for me, I joined in 76. I had wanted to go since I, uh, to an academy, a military academy, since I read Boy's Life in sixth grade and learned all about it. So I worked very hard to get into there. The one thing that I wasn't prepared for, there were two things. One thing was I had never been exposed to computer science. And so my first computer science class was a Fortran class in plebe, in my plebe year, and I really did well at it. I really liked it, and I became a tutor. I helped a lot of my classmates with it. And I realized that at the time, that wasn't an option, you know, to study and to basically focus on computer science. It was an element of it, but basically you could study anything you wanted at the academy back then as long as it was engineering. And it was mostly mechanical civil engineering, right? That, so I made a tough decision to leave. One, because I didn't want to occupy a space longer than I felt was. I felt somebody who wanted to go and do that and knew that they would go on to become a military officer, that was important. And I felt that I was occupying a space that I shouldn't be occupying. So that was one piece. The other part is I do think, you know, it was my first, I've been an exchange student a couple of times, not for a year at a time, but, a, you know, four or five months at a time. And there were some elements of homesickness then. That was when I was 13 or 15, but it really hit me at the academy. I went early. I was 17. So I graduated early from high school. And I think there was an element of homesickness that was involved. So I think those two things combined together, I decided that it made more sense for me to join this, uh, what was becoming the Silicon Valley 
of the time. And it's turned out okay, right? I mean, you think back, could I have made a different decision? Absolutely. You know, but then I wouldn't have married the wife I've had for 40 some odd years, my kids, grandkids. So it's all worked out, but I have always spent time trying to hire graduates. So my contribution back, some fantastic people, you know, part of the team, Dan Streetman, who went on, he's now CEO at Tibco. Dan was one of the guys I hired out of HBS. Ken Gonzalez, who went on to be a key contributor at McAfee and FireEye. Andy Forcell, who was for a while CEO of Hulu. I mean, these are phenomenal people that I got to hire into my team. It made me look great. And, and so I've tried to give back by hiring veterans. And by the way, not just West Point, but Annapolis Air Force Academy, one or two, but over time, quite a number of uh, academy grads and officers, former officers in the military. That's great. And, you know, I feel like when I put myself 20 years ago in my midshipman self, at the time, there was the judgment of someone who left as like a quitter or a failure. And I've learned, thankfully, over the last 20 years of realizing the power when someone makes a decision that's right for them. I mean, that's a gift to everyone. That's a gift to the people you, it's just good all around. And in my view, that takes more courage to be really honest about what is right for you. And I see it when people leave jobs that aren't the right fit. I see them when they leave all sorts of things. So I really appreciate your candor and reflection on that. I know that we only have a few minutes left here, and I always like to keep the last question open-ended. We've covered a tremendous amount of ground around C3 AI, about CMO, about venture capital, taking a company public. I'm sure there's things I didn't ask that you could share, and I just wanted to make space for anything that we didn't cover that you want to make sure listeners know before we wrap up. You know, maybe I could just talk about the marketing function. I think that some people may misunderstand what you need to be able to do to be a great marketer. It isn't about all brand. It's not about fonts and parties and what I think a lot of people might think is marketing. Marketing is really around finding identifiable markets, understanding what they want, what they need, how to communicate with them, how to translate in this industry, how to translate technology into value, value propositions, and basically telling a story that people can understand. It is to come up with the right positioning for a company, to come up with a category named. These take as much effort. You can do it right and to be successful. It takes as much effort as it does, and I think intellect, as it does to build a great product. So And in fact, I would argue that for most technology companies, I would argue you'd be better served to begin in product marketing and even in sales. In fact, a lot in sales. In fact, I told one of my daughters who is a senior VP of marketing for a company, I told her in the beginning, I said, take a sales job. Learn how not to spew garbage (laughs) into the market. You're going to find out very quickly what works, what doesn't work, and you'll be a far more effective marketer by starting there. I would encourage people who have a technical background to consider marketing. I think we need more CMOs with more product understanding, more technical understanding. A lot of things that we're doing now, the way that we're building these products, whether the consumer or not, are going to involve things like artificial intelligence. I think the distinction of AI today, obviously we have that in our name, but I think at some point it just becomes expected. AI will not be a distinguishable factor. It will be expected in the products. You need to have a deeper understanding of technology. You don't need to be a computer scientist. You don't need to be a data scientist, but you need to have curiosity and passion for learning these things in order to be a more effective marketer. You need to be able to be analytical. You need to understand how to instruct and push your organization to do more of what's working and and less of what isn't. And the only way you can do that is by having an understanding of what technical items or technical capabilities can you use 
to understand those elements. So I think it's becoming more of a technical field. I think we're getting more of those folks. So I think that's good. The second part is venture capital. I don't think we need people graduating as MBAs into the venture community. Please don't do that. Go get an operating job. Do that for 10 years. Find out what works, what doesn't work. Learn. Learn how to run a company because you're of no value to an entrepreneur if you haven't personally done this. You know, you need to have done it. You need to know what works and what doesn't work. And just by joining a firm, you know, the traditional thing, get your MBA, go to Goldman Sachs, technology banking, and then join a venture firm. I don't think the world needs that. I think the world needs more people who learn by doing these things and then join a venture firm and help the entrepreneurs. Then your point of view will be steeped in actual experience. It would be almost like going through the academy and expecting you to take command of a field operation right out of school. I mean, you need to learn, right? You need to go on the job and learn what's down at the very lowest levels and learn how to contribute. So the same thing needs to happen, I think, in venture. And I would encourage people to, I do encourage people to be involved in venture, but do it after you've held an operating role. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for your time. For those of you listening to this while you're driving, flying a jet, driving a submarine, Bruce did mention some great resources. His book, Traverse the Traction Gap, The Perfect Weapon, This is How They Tell Me the World Ends. All of these and more will be listed in the show notes at beyondtheuniform.org, as well as more information about C3AI. Thank you, Bruce, so much for your time today. You bet, Justin. Surface, surface, surface. <laughs> Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our Chief of Staff, Steve Bain, our Editor, Lex Brown, and our Head of Social Media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for-purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.